Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org.
today. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, special emphasis on verse 11 this morning. John 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Uh, Father in heaven, we need <clears throat> your Holy Spirit to give wisdom to us, to lead us to truth, to protect us from error, to soften our hearts, to give us faith, to prepare us to repent, to hate our sin, and to love your gospel. We need your spirit for these things, so send him now for that purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So are all sins equal? Um, my answer is yes and no, and th those are my two points. And my, so let's talk about yes first. In what sense is the answer yes? All sins are equal, yes, when it comes to our standing before God. So if we look at verse 11 here, just to kind of give you a little context, we've got um, two people who are being discussed. Jesus answers Pilate says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So, uh, you know, really striking statement there about the sovereignty of God over everyone who is in any kind of political authority. Uh, even Pilate, who made the final decision to send Jesus to the cross, was in that place of authority because God had given him that authority. And then Jesus goes on and says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So he who delivered me over to you, who is that? And we don't, it's not explained here. Most people think that Jesus is referring to Judas here. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver and called the authorities in to take Jesus away. And, and I, I think that's probably a safe answer, although there are others who think that it's actually referring to Caiaphas, the high priest, because he was the one who said back in uh, John 11, 49 and 51, he kind of set his heart to making sure that Jesus would be put to death. Uh, so that's kind of the Jewish high priest. <clears throat> so um, I, I'm just going to assume that it's Judas. Uh, it could be Caiaphas, but I think it's Judas. But um, what Jesus says here is, um, the one who delivered you over to me has the greater sin. But you know, before we talk about that, I, I just want you to notice that 
what, what Jesus is not doing here is he's not giving a pass to Pilate. He's not exonerating Pilate. Even though he's talking about a greater sin, he's not saying what you're doing, Pilate, is okay. Pilate's sin is a lesser sin, but it's still a sin. What Pilate is doing here in his cowardice, he, he said in the text, you heard me point it out, that he finds no guilt in Jesus. He sees that Jesus is innocent, and yet he still sends him to a cross. I mean, that's, that's a sin. And so it might be a smaller sin, but it's still a sin. So, in fact, it is the case that even the very smallest of sins that we might commit still warrant God's wrath and anger and condemnation against us. Even the very smallest of sins. It, it just takes one sin in thought, word, or deed to bring you under the condemnation and wrath of God. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. Let, let me give you some examples of that. And let's think of the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve have a relationship with God. God puts them in the garden, says you can eat from any tree in the garden, but here's one tree over here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I don't want you to eat from that. And what do Adam and Eve do? They go and they pick a piece of fruit off of that, and they eat of it, and the result of that is spiritual death, separation from God, separation from each other. They're cast out of the garden, and then all of the descendants of Adam and Eve inherit that sin and that spiritual death. That's a huge consequence to what is actually a very small sin, isn't it? They just ate a piece of fruit. That's it. One small sin brought the whole human race under the condemnation of God. We can look at elsewhere in, in Scripture and see how this is confirmed. Galatians 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed is the one who doesn't obey everything in God's law. That means one slip up, you're under the wrath of God. How about James chapter 2, verse 10? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. I mean, that's a pretty righteous person, isn't it? Kept the whole law but messes up in one point has become guilty of all of it. Just one mess up, just one small sin. That's intense, isn't it? In this sense, yes, all sins are the same. I mean, I don't know if that's what we really have in mind when we say all sins are equal in God's sight. You know, sometimes people say, well, nobody's perfect, and we say that as a way of kind of excusing sin. It's like, yeah, nobody's perfect, you're right. And the fact that you have not met the standard of perfection set forth by God has brought you under the condemnation of God. Nobody's perfect is not really, in the Christian view, a comforting thought. <laughs> That's the problem. So you might think to yourself, this, man, that sounds like a total overreaction. I mean, is God just this grumpy guy? I mean, what is this? How could he, how could he be so angry over such small things? Well, I mean, let, just a few examples about how you kind of see this play out, I guess, in other places. 
you know, if you had a bowl of jelly beans, let's say there were a thousand jelly beans in there, and you knew one of them was poisonous, would you serve it to your guests? Just one jelly bean. What's the big deal? How about um, you're sitting down to eat um, some omelets that somebody's making, and he's mixing up these omelets, he's making a whole bunch of eggs together, he's got like ten eggs in there, and he turns to you and says, I just want to let you know that one of the eggs is rotten. It's just one. Here you go. Serves it up on your plate. It's just one egg. You're going to eat that? How about you're getting ready to go on a 10-mile hike, and you got a little rock in your shoe, Right there with your big toe. And every time you step, you just feel it pressing against your toe. You going to go 10 miles like that? Or are you going to stop and get rid of that rock? Or are you going to say, it's just a rock, it's just a small thing. It's just this tiny little pebble in the front of my shoe. Fact is, a small thing, in many cases, a small thing can ruin everything. Here's another example. Some of you know about the, the Titanic that sank back in 1912, hit an iceberg. Everybody pretty knows that. It's accepted knowledge that that's what happened. But a question that a lot of people have asked is, why did it sink so fast after it hit the iceberg? And the answer given by some is that it's just these, these tiny little rivets that were holding the, the bow of the ship together, like the ones you see in the picture there. It, it came to light that whoever made the Titanic settled for some substandard material in the making of those rivets. And that's why the bow came apart and the ship sank so fast. The weakest and smallest part of that ship ended up being its most fatal flaw. So in many cases, we see it's just, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not serious. All sins are equal when it comes to our standing before God because even one sin is a violation, an offense against the holiness of God. That's what we've been thinking about today. That this is something that is beyond our comprehension, the holiness, righteousness, purity, the entire separateness of God as a being with no flaw and no blemish and no sin and no evil. It's something we cannot comprehend. But God is so holy that any kind, even the smallest offense, against that holiness is something that he cannot accept. So R.C. Sproul, who's written about this topic of God's holiness, says this, sin is cosmic treason. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. And my judgment is better than yours. So friends, it's no use trying to justify yourself by God, by, before God by saying things like, well, you know, at least I'm not fill in the blank. At least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not a child molester. At least I'm not homosexual. At least I haven't committed adultery. At least I'm not divorced. At least I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I, I'm, I'm okay. I didn't do those bad things. So I'm okay before God on my own. That won't work because you, if, if you have failed in even one point, you're guilty of all of it. So yeah, all sins are equal in that sense. And that's why we need a Savior. 
That's why every one of you, myself included, needs a Savior. On our own, it's hopeless. Hopeless. But there is a Savior. Thank God. Thank God there is a Savior, a righteous Savior, who did obey the law at every point, who was holy and righteous, who did for us what we can't do for ourselves, and then even went to a cross and paid for all of our sins, which are a whole lot more than just one tiny sin. That's the good news. So yes, when it comes to our standing before God, all sins are equal. But the second part to this is, is no. Uh, no, not all sins are equal when it comes to how grievous each particular sin is. There is a difference in the level of seriousness, in the, in the, in the degree to which God's heart is offended by a sin. There is a difference so, you know, you notice that when I read verse 11 the first time. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Clearly, Jesus thinks that some sins are greater than others. Now, the question we might ask is, why was Jesus, Judas' sin considered greater than Pilate's sin? And Jesus doesn't tell us this. Uh, this, this might be speculation, but one reason could be because Pilate was kind of acting in a reactionary mode here. You know, he was, uh, Jesus was sent to him, and Pilate made a judgment, and it was a bad judgment, a horrible judgment that he had to give account to God for. But Pilate didn't set himself out. He didn't hatch a plan in his heart to go out and get Jesus, which is what happened with Judas. You know, Judas thought, I'm going to betray him. And he took intentional, ongoing, repeated steps to make that happen. That would be true of Caiaphas as well, actually, if you go back and see, again, back to John 11, where he already was at that time thinking about sending Jesus to the cross. So Judah's sin is, is more serious than Pilate's sin. And so we see here the principle is very clear. Yes, there is a different degree of various sins. So what I want to do is just, I'm going to give you four examples, I'm sure there's more in Scripture, but four examples of sins that would be considered more serious than other sins, okay? So the first is this, the sin of false teaching. The Bible would say that the sin of false teaching is a particularly serious and egregious sin. Um, this is the verse that makes every pastor a little nervous. Makes us all shudder just a little bit, and, and properly so, rightfully so. James 3, verse 1, here's what it says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Greater strictness than others will be judged. I'm going to be, I'm going to have more to account for on Judgment Day as a preacher who stands here. I mean, I'm telling you, there are times, I mean, just when I think of the, the ideas that come into your minds, the way that you guys, your conception of God is to some degree connected to the things that I say on Sunday mornings. I mean, I tell you, sometimes that just terrifies me and wants me to go put a resume in at Walmart Teaching has, has great effect. I think this is one reason why teachers of the gospel, there's very serious consequences to what people say in the name of God toward other people. 
I mean, these are internal consequences that are weighing in the balance here. You know, Jesus said at one point, if you don't believe who I say I am, you'll die in your sins. Well, how do people know who Jesus says that he is? Through the Bible, yes, by reading it, but in, often it's through teachers and through preachers. So the content and the substance of what is being said and the, the seriousness of the potential consequences, I think, is one reason why James says this, but also because of the number of people who are affected by what a teacher has to say. Um, parents will have to give an account for how they've raised their kids, but you know, preachers are standing before a great number of people every Sunday, and some preachers have thousands of people listening to them every Sunday, and those who are on the internet have even more worldwide listening to the things that they say, and it has serious consequences. Um, so there is going to be a stricter judgment for those who are preachers and teachers. So that's one area where there's clearly a difference in the seriousness of sin, but here is another example the sin against the Holy Spirit. Certainly this is a sin that is more serious than others. Mark 3, verses 28 to 30, make this pretty clear. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Very important, important phrase here. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I mean, what a shocking thing to hear. I mean, clearly we know, and we say this every single Sunday at New Life, that sins can be forgiven, right? And the Bible would say that, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And, and that is absolutely true. You bring your sins to God and lay them at the cross, and He will forgive them. He'll wipe them away. He'll remove them from you as far as the east is from the west. And we see many examples of that, right? David commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba and has a man killed, Bathsheba's husband, and his sin was forgiven. That's how gracious God is. Uh, how about uh, the Apostle Paul, a persecutor of the church, arrested Christians, killed Christians? He was forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He confessed his sins and was exonerated. Or how about Peter, who publicly denied Jesus, denied that he ever knew him before others? Forgiven. Sin wiped away. Fully accepted by God. But the sin against the Holy Spirit? No forgiveness. Now, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Very important question to answer. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is, Based on that last phrase, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What these people were doing that Jesus were talking about is they were hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit was working on them, and they were saying that is from the pit of hell. That is satanic. They were ascribing to the Holy Spirit and to the gospel a satanic source. They were ascribing what has come from God to the devil. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I can just assure you right now, this morning, if you're even just a tiny bit concerned that maybe you have committed this sin, you haven't. Because <laughs> any kind of concern about that, and I can tell by the silence in the room right now that there's a lot of concerned people, and that's a good sign. People who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit don't care whether they've committed that sin or not. Their hearts are hard, they're calloused, it is not an issue for them. 
But if you have even the slightest concern, if it's a matter to you, you can be sure that is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit continuing in your life. Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, but I've doubted. But I'm not sure really about certain things that I hear at New Life and certain things I read in the Bible. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I've been an atheist all my life and I don't really know what I believe. Those are not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's a settled, intentional, stubborn, persistent declaration that the work of God and the gospel is of the devil. But at the very least, what we see here is that that's a very serious sin, right? More serious than other sins. Are all sins equal? No. Third, third category. Sins of sexual immorality. Based on 1 Corinthians 6, 18. And here's what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So the implication here is that these other sins that are committed are a little bit different than the sin of sexual immorality because it's a sin against the body. Now this is kind of a debated passage. If you go back before verse 18, you'll see that Paul says that our bodies are a member of Christ. Uh, it says our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what seems to be in mind here is this idea that when a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit and a member of, of Christ's body, when that person then unites his or her body to another in a sinful act like sexual immorality, that there's like a holy, an unholy union that is taking place there. That the spirit in the Christian and Jesus in the Christian is now being involved in a sinful act in a way that doesn't take place when other sins are committed. So there's something serious about sexual immorality of, of all kinds. I'm not talking just about homosexuality here. I'm talking about all kinds of sex. I'm talking about any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds or boundaries of heterosexual marriage. That's sexual immorality. I mean, this is just so contrary to what our culture keeps telling us. Our culture just loves to say all sins are the same in God's eyes, which means sexual immorality is not really that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. You can imagine people kind of reasoning, saying, you know, well, you know, I know I'm, I'm guilty of lust, okay, so I, I've got that problem, but if all sins are equal in God's sight, what's really the problem if I start looking at pornography? It's not really, it's not like a step in a more serious direction, so why not? And then you start looking at pornography, and then it's like, well, I'm guilty of lust and pornography. Why not just have sex with somebody? All sins are the same. It's not going to make things any worse for me because I'm already guilty. I think that's faulty reasoning. It's not biblical reasoning. Sexual immorality is worse than lust. Adultery is worse than lust. It grieves God's heart in a different way. And the more we sin in one way, the more likely it can lead to other sins. This is a serious sin. Last thing. The sin of gospel rejection. Matthew eleven twenty three 23 to 24. 
the sin of gospel rejection. Here's what, what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, he's talking to uh, a city uh, where people had heard the gospel. He says, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be, excuse me, you will be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That is, it wouldn't have been destroyed. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In other words, Capernaum's gonna be judged more strictly than Sodom because their sin of rejecting the gospel is worse even than the sins committed in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a place, of course, that we think of as the, you know, the worst sins ever committed. This is sin city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, their sins were serious, but what Jesus is saying is the sins committed when people hear the gospel and they reject it outright, they have more to account for on Judgment Day particularly those who have been living since the coming of, of Jesus, and particularly those in the West and those in the United States of America where Jesus is proclaimed everywhere. You can hardly find anybody in the United States who hasn't heard of Jesus, and yet you have people all over the place who are rejecting and scoffing at the gospel. Judgment Day is going to be difficult for those who've heard the gospel freely proclaimed and have rejected it outright. And so that applies to, to you all here today. I mean, you're hearing the gospel. Every Sunday that you are here at New Life is increasing your accountability before God because you're hearing about Jesus. And there will be stricter judgment for you if you reject the gospel. So, how do we wind this up? A very simple application it would simply be this, friends. If you're doing this, if you're minimizing sins in your life, rationalizing them away, getting comfortable with them, cozying up to them, explaining to yourself in your mind that all sins are equal, so this thing I'm about to do must not be that bad. You need to repent. You need to repent of that. One step towards sin so easily leads to the next step, and the quicker you repent, the quicker you will be free from that slippery slope into further sin. But let me apply the gospel to this, friends. If you're convicted right now, and you're feeling a little guilty, that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. Guilt can be a good thing. You don't want to stay in guilt. You don't want to remain in guilt. You don't want to hang around there forever. But when God, by His Spirit, convicts you of a sin, that's good. That means God loves you. That means He doesn't want you to stay there. That means He wants you to come to the gospel. He wants you to enjoy the free grace that He offers to you in His Son. And so here's how I sum this up. No sin is so small that it doesn't deserve the wrath of God, but no sin is so large that it can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. No sin is so large. Whatever you've done, whatever you're feeling guilty about, what we're going to do right now is we're going to arise and go to Jesus in song. And I would encourage you to arise and go to Jesus in your heart. Go to him with your sin. Lay it at the cross. He will embrace you in his arms and he'll never let you go.
So let's rise, let's stand, let's sing. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that although conviction is painful, it is good for us. And we thank you and praise you, not only for that, but that there is refuge for sinners, that we can arise and go to you and know that you will receive us when we plead the blood of Jesus on behalf of our sins. Thank you for all you've done, dying for our sins and rising from the dead to free us from condemnation. We praise you, we love you, and now we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.